0: and the world of your dreams. On today's episode, my guest is Deb Katz. Deb has more than 20 years experience pioneering new models in conscious leadership and in the organizational world. She coaches leaders one-to-one, facilitates teams, and consults for organizational and cultural transformation. She is known to radiate warmth and presence, to tell it like it is, and to walk her talk with a focused, gentle fierceness. Deb is a powerhouse of a human being and leader. She holds a BA in sociology with a focus on collective behavior and organizational development from San Diego State University and an RN from Cabrillo College with years of practice in cardiac and hospice care. She also has training in somatic psychology and the Enneagram personality test. And if you've been listening to my podcast for any amount of time, you have probably heard me make reference to the Conscious Leadership Group and the 15 Commitments of Conscious Leadership, the book. And Deb is one of the coaches who works at the Conscious Leadership Group, and we explore in this 50-minute conversation what is conscious and what is leadership. So we start by defining them as technical terms. And then we talk about navigating the landscape of ourselves, because what it means to be a conscious leader, among other things, is being attuned to our own needs, our own feelings, and being able to say, hey, I'm a little bit triggered right now. I'm in a defensive state. And so we go into how to locate all the different ways that we might feel. We go into questions that we can ask ourselves And we go into what possibility emerges when we are conscious and cultivate self-awareness. I know a lot of you, my fellow listeners, are probably in pretty technical professions where it doesn't seem like we have space for feelings. And Dev goes into depth about how this is applicable for every single person. And so I think you're gonna really get a lot out of this conversation. I'm a huge fan of the Conscious Leadership Group and of Deb, and I think that you should definitely take a deeper dive into their work. With all that said, let's settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy what Deb has for us in this powerful conversation today. Deb, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you. It's really good to be here with
0: you. It's great to be here with you as well. I'm I'm such a big fan of the Conscious Leadership Group, and I've had the pleasure of seeing you in action and seeing you coach and sharing your gifts. And uh, I've been so looking forward to having you on. Before we get into the work you do, I start off every interview with the same question. What was it like at your dinner table growing up? And what did you wanna be when you grew up?
1: Wow, fun question. My dinner table was full of, (laughs) it was like, uh, for me, dreading eating because I so did not like what was being offered. (laughs) (laughs) So I was like making a lot of jokes and doing everything I could to not eat. It was like a lot of meat at my family dinner table. I'm not a big meat eater. And so Mm -hmm. that was like always a big gag for everyone. (laughs) And what was the second question? What I want to be when I grew up. Yeah. I went through a cycle of wanting to be a hairdresser and I remember a cycle of wanting to be an astronaut.
0: So interesting. And then and you ended up being a sociology major in college, correct?
1: I did. I started as a criminal justice uh-huh. and then that lasted a half a semester and quickly changed to sociology.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. And so I know that your career has taken a bunch of twists and turns and I believe I've heard you say in other interviews before that there was always a, a part of you that was after the truth. Like that, mm-hmm. that seems to be the guiding force behind a bunch of your decisions. And I'm wondering, I i didn't want to start off the interview the same way that I think a lot of times it is for you. Like, tell me about conscious leadership and how did you find it? But I'm ending up back there anyway. So in your search for the truth, how did you end up in being interested by conscious leadership and now at the conscious leadership group.
1: Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, I think there's been a part of me, you know, like things that stand out to me are uh, you know, I was a big fan of John Lennon's music as a kid mm-hmm. in junior high and high school and I remember being very impacted by his politics and the lyrics of his music. They took me places. Mm-hmm. And then I was very politically active and in in college and then political political stuff after that. So there's been something around justice and what's, what's it all about, Alice, that I've been in pursuit of. And then after college, I really started pursuing sort of the spiritual. So I, I kind of first went macro, structural, what's it all about? And then started going inward and studying with, I think, some of the premier thought leaders Of that time. And um, you know, reading Jack Cornfield and A Path with Heart and other other folks I was studying. And, you know, Diana Chapman, who now is a co founder of the Conscious Leadership Group, she moved to Santa Cruz, California, where I was living. And she started teaching some classes about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years before CLG became a thing. And so I started training with her in these kind of like beta. Beta, beta, beta. CLG events, gatherings, experiments, and uh, I started going deeper and deeper with that uh, until CAG, CLG actually became an entity.
0: Hmm. I had never heard the origin of how you and Diana met. Was so when she actually started CLG? Did you come on board immediately, and you were one of the coaches, or was that did you guys kind of go your separate way for a little bit, and then you returned?
1: Yeah. You know, she'd be a better historian than me on CLG, but there was a beta thing um, called CLF and I was not a part of that. That was, I was being a nurse at that time. And then as things started to progress, I came on board um, as CLG became an entity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I was one of the, one of the first uh, members
0: of the team. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so the meat and potatoes of the conversation, I want to just explore what is CLG all about? And I think it could be helpful to just define, I've heard you do this a bunch of times, but for my listeners, what does conscious mean to you? And what is leadership?
1: Yeah, it is fundamental. And, you know, we use both of these words a lot, I think, in the vernacular these days. Mm -hmm. So those are technical terms to us at CLG. So it's good to define them. Mm -hmm. So what CLG is up to is really sharing and expanding. This really is our mission is to expand conscious leadership in the world. And that's what we have. That's what we're up to. That's what I do every day. And thankfully, so I just talk with interesting people like you pioneers mm-hmm. and try to put some wind in people's sails about what's possible
2: mm-hmm.
1: in the realm of Life and leadership, because they're really mixed. Uh, I think compartmentalizing life and leadership isn't so much of service
2: mm-hmm.
1: anymore. And so, technical terms, when we talk about conscious leadership, we're talking about the state of being, the ability to be here and now in a non triggered and non reactive state. That's what we'd call conscious.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we do a lot of talking about how the system is actually hardwired to scan the environment for threat. I think from early days of human beings, you know, is that a good berry? Is that gonna feed me and my family? Or is that a bad berry? And that's gonna kill me and my family. We're kind of programmed to scan the environment for a potential threat. And now we relate in much of our lives, whether it's with our colleague or a family member, still scanning for a potential threat. Mm-hmm. Um. And we might respond to an email as if it was a threat, like a saber tooth tiger, and that's not the case. Mm -hmm. So getting really good at being able to identify what are my signals? What are my landmarks? How do I know when I'm in a threatened state? If it is such a normal way of being, if it is the water we swim in, let's get familiar with it. And um, so that's the practice of being conscious. And then leadership is by our definition is, you know, someone who's really willing to take responsibility for their impact, Mm -hmm. for their influence. Mm -hmm. And one of my favorite definitions is someone who's willing to step into the unknown, kind of out of the script of the listening filters through which we listen to each other and interpret the world. Like, what is it really to get off of that script and into the unknown, like a child's state of wonder?
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we look at conscious as being here now in a non-triggered, non-reactive state, someone might be listening to this and saying, "How do, how do I know where I am?" and and this feels like a good time to introduce the four questions of conscious leadership. It's a way to track where you are in any given moment. What's what's happening in you would say a planet Deb or on planet Mike? Like what's what's going on here? So what are the four questions? of conscious leadership and and how do you help people cultivate that inner awareness to know what's, what's going on?
1: Yeah. Great. Thank you for such a thorough question, by the way. Yeah. So really the whole platform is based on this scaffolding of the, these four questions of conscious leadership. We have dozens of practices and exercises to meet people where they are in different personality styles but it really does come down to these four questions. They're simple and textured. Mm -hmm. So the first question of conscious leadership, and this is what we do with all of our teams and all of our individual leaders that we work with, is the first question is, where am I? Because these are self-awareness tools that we use in relationship, but I've got to start right here in the scope where we do have control is what's going on over here where am I? And so it's a location question that simply addresses, am I in a state of threat, which we use some jargon below the line, but it just means, am I in a state of threat right now? Or am I in a state of openness, not reactivity, um, trust? And Developing some mastery to be able to make that discernment. Because again, we all think the way we are is just the way we are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And yet a lot of the times what's going on is different parts of us are responding and reacting to scenarios based on strategies that we learned when we were very young to cope. Mm -hmm. And some of those strategies will pick up unconsciously and utilize without even realizing it's a coping strategy and it could be from a state of reactivity. So it could be something like, can I swear on this podcast, Michael? I don't even know. Absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, if you were to say to me, if we're in a conversation talking about strategy, for example, we work together and you were to say to me, Hey, Deb, you know, feels like I'm getting a little hot and I, I think maybe, maybe we could cool down. You know, I'm over here thinking that, you know, you might be a little defensive right now. And mm-hmm. if I was to say, you know, F you, I'm not being defensive, what the fuck? Back off. Mm-hmm. There's like nowhere to go, right? In that moment. But if you were to say to that that same thing to me, hey, Deb, you know, I'm just, I notice I'm starting to withdraw. I keep thinking you're defensive. Maybe let's take a time out. And I'm to say, and I sit back and I say, wait a minute. Okay, let me check and see. Gosh, you're right. I'm defensive and righteous as fuck right now. Thank you. Give me 15 seconds and let me see if I can get right again. Give me 30 seconds. So it's just having that bandwidth on the inside to be able to check and see where am I? Am I in a state of reactivity and the courage to be able to own it? Oh, yeah, you're right. I'm positioned. I'm just waiting my turn to be able to convince you of my position, which is happening all day long in people's meetings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's the first question of conscious leadership. Where am I? It's an inside game. And then the second question is, can I accept myself for simply being right where I am? And so there's some research done, uh, much of it done by Gay and Katie Hendricks of the Hendricks Institute, from whom we got a lot of this material and are indebted to and grateful for their contributions suggests that more than 95% of us are spending more than 95% of our time in a threatened reactive state. It's normal. It's natural. And so this question, I think about it as it's really a meditation. It's not from the neck up. Yeah, of course I can accept it. Now let's get to the fix. You know, it really is taking a breath, taking a pause from head to toe can you accept, you know, can you grant yourself the right to simply be a human being who got scared and picked up a, an old family friend of a coping mechanism to deal with that? I don't know about you or your listeners, but for me, you know, much of my life, I tried to amputate parts of myself
2: mm-hmm. that I
1: didn't like, or I got feedback, people, other people didn't like, and I would try really hard not to be that mm-hmm. And sure enough, that behavior would show up again. And it didn't work. And I think even that perpetuated the war inside of there's something wrong with me. So I got to amputate it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But this next question, this can I accept myself, has really opened up a whole new avenue for me around self acceptance.
2: Yeah.
1: And a byproduct of that is I have so much more acceptance for other human beings being human beings. Mm -hmm. Is I recognize when people include, you know of course myself get agitated, it's just because we get scared and how human that is. So I like to give a lot of airtime to the second question um, because it's been transformational for me, more acceptance of our humanity. Mm -hmm. And it's not the end of the conversation, but it's really the beginning of the conversation in a new way
0: hmm.
1: So those are the two questions.
0: Yeah. And I was I was going to say I would love to hear three and four, but I actually wanted to interject here anyway, because there's there's two things that are coming to mind for me that mm-hmm. things that have like I've been a fan of this book for quite some time now, but have also been of the neck up variety for almost all of my life. And it's been a journey into discovering the intelligence of my emotions, of my gut, of my body. And so One of the hangups that I have had in the past, and I'm sure many of my listeners have, is that first question of where am I now can be, (laughs) it could feel like I'm asking this question that I have no compass and I, I don't even know where to go from there. So for someone who doesn't have the emotional literacy or the, I guess, the body awareness yet, where would you start with that person? Like, how do you help them? develop awareness around that question.
1: Yeah, that's a great, thanks for pointing that out. We do have literally a handout that acts like a map that helps people with a a starting point. There's some prompts around, what does the territory of reactivity look like? Because if it is the water we swim in, how am I gonna see that? So some examples are things like different common statements or behaviors or beliefs that people might have that they think are just normal and it's how they speak, or, but they actually might be indicating a state of threat, a fear based reactive state. So things like, you know, these are good ones because they're so common. Things like how often somebody might say, look, this is what so and so should do, mm-hmm. or I should have done this, or they don't understand or the fact is, that's another good one. One of my nuanced ones that I've added to the list is I notice I say the phrase in my head or out loud very often through the day of, are you fucking kidding me? (laughs) And that's become one of my alerts. I've like yellow flagged myself now. When I hear myself say that, I go, wait a second, Deb, where are you? Because There's some way those phrases are pointing to my state of consciousness where I might be at the effect of, where I might be blaming, or where there's another good one of, okay, how do we fix this? Let me figure this out, Mm -hmm. which are all kind of flags for one of the tools and games that we play with. I know, you know, called the drama triangle Mm -hmm. in such a way where there's this, Idea. There was a psychologist in the 70s by the name of Stephen Cartman. And he said he studied, you know, human dynamics and human relationships. And he said that most of the time people are in this drama triangle where they're feeling at the effect of something like, I'm so overwhelmed. Oh gosh. Or they're in villain where they're blaming. And it could be blaming you, you're the reason the project failed oh, I should have prepared more for this presentation of blaming themselves or blaming systems or environments like, oh, it's the pandemic, you know, F the pandemic, that's why. Mm-hmm. Anytime we're in a state of blame, that's a good indicator to go, wait a second, where am I? That might be coming from a state of reactivity rather than creativity. Mm-hmm. And then the third role on that drama triangle is the hero, where we're like figuring it out and fixing. And the key here is the hero will be providing temporary relief. It won't really pull the tap root on whatever keeps that issue or that complaint going on. So those are some landmarks. You know, some, another one in behaviors could be something like somebody having wine every night at the end of the day, because that's how they off gas, gossiping, um, not breathing. Holding, holding our breath, repressing our feelings or trying to control ours or other feelings. Beliefs are something like, you know, it's my way or the highway, I know I'm right. Or uh, beliefs around scarcity, there's not enough time, there's not enough talent, there's not enough money, there's not enough love. So there is kind of a map that we can use to help people track when they're in that state of threat. And when you talk about body awareness, You know, I think there is a lot of data in the body Mm -hmm. that we culturally dismiss Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that we either don't know how to access or we dismiss it. You know, like there's a choice you want to make, but you notice you have a stomach ache when you think about it, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that might give pause. Do you want to open a door that gives you a stomach ache (laughs) (laughs) or do you want to open a door that you might have some sadness about? but also uplifting, you don't have a stomach ache. So there's lots of ways that we can really start including somatic data in our decision-making.
0: Mm-hmm. So I really, I wanna get into this with you. I wanna talk more about body awareness and I know that you're a trained somatic practitioner as well. So you're, you're very well-versed in, in that domain and I, I wanna lean on you for your expertise there. And I'm wondering, I you guys, probably work with a decent amount of pretty technical companies like tech startups. My background is in accounting. Maybe you work with some engineers. And I'm imagining myself in a meeting with a bunch of different CPAs in, in my office. And I can I can kind of get myself to not kind of, I mean I, I fully am committed to this individually. Like I am asking myself, where am I now? I have mind jogger, the app still And I really am pausing. I'm taking a few breaths. I'm checking in like what's happening in my body right now. And if I'm reactive, like, can I, can I be with that? And like, of course, that's always step one. And I'm thinking on an organizational level, like how challenging that would be to, in the middle of a meeting, a partner goes, he says something that I get reactive to, like, says a deadline that I find to be unreasonable, and then fear arises in me. And I know like the textbook way to handle that would be like, hey, I'm just I'm noticing a, a sensation in my gut right now that I have identified as fear. I just wanted to surface that right now. That would be one way to approach it. But there's a lot of resistance around bringing that into an office environment. And I'd be curious to hear how you help a, more technical professionals Bring this work into their office.
1: Mm Hmm. Yeah, that's a layered question because you're talking about organizational or team culture,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and you're talking about individual courage to talk um, about things that might be weird. You know that people aren't talking about. I feel a swirl in my stomach when you talk about that deadline. You know, I want to give. You know, I want to validate what you're saying. That's still weird in the corporate environment. Becoming less and less so in my experience, but it is still pioneering. And so, you know, we find it, you know, when we come, when we work in organizations, we start with leadership so that the leader is actually role modeling everything that you just said and that there's an acceptance and not only acceptance, but an encouragement and a welcoming of all of these centers of intelligence the head, the heart, and the gut so that the swirl in the stomach is relevant. It's not weird. And it's actually a way that people can discern between their experience, which is like a swirl in the stomach and righteousness about whatever position they might have. Cause a lot of people will come in with a lot of righteousness. So if I tell you, I feel a swirl in my stomach and fear around that deadline, there's nothing I'm telling you I'm right about. I'm just reporting my experience
2: mm-hmm.
1: and teams I find that teams that are doing that together are moving more like flocks of birds with so much elegance and efficiency. And when the leader, when leadership has buy-in, when they're, when they're leading that initiative, it's, it's such a welcome mat. But for individuals listening to this podcast, who may be the only one, you know, there's lots of ways you can translate this because the goal is again, to be revealed About your experience without being right about anything. Because that's when people really get positioned, is when we get right about things, then anyone who disagrees with us is already polarized. Mm -hmm. So it could be something like street language, you know, could be something like, um, you know, if you're my boss and you tell me you want this deadline, I might say, you know, hey Michael, you know, I just want to be revealed. Is that okay? You know, to get your buy-in to be candid, can I be candid? And then say, yeah, just I want to let you know as I think about this deadline, everything on my plate, everything going on, I, you know, I feel scared, and I'm not sure like this is going to really work. You know, is there room to iterate here? So there's ways that you can use your data, your internal emotional and somatic data, and not be so weird, but not dismiss it.
0: Yeah. Well, somatic came up again and I wanted to like, that's where I put a pin in, in the last response that you had. And I really want to talk about building awareness in the body because that has been so transformational for me. And I think, you know, the, the first commitment taking radical responsibility, I mean, it, there's a, there's a lot of practice that goes into that. It's a simple enough thing to take a hundred percent responsibility of what's happening and not to be you you mentioned the drama triangle before the, the victim, the villain and the hero. And instead of being at the affect of or being a rescuer, it's just taking responsibility for yourself. And I have found that the real, the deeper transformation that I have experienced has has come around commitment three of feeling my feelings to completion. And so with regard to our SOMA, could you name the five core feelings and maybe where we experience them in our body and the wisdom that each of these emotions has for us? I know that's a, a long question to answer, but I have faith that you're up to the task.
1: Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So the commitment number three is about the willingness to experience all of our emotions and be a space for others to also experience theirs. A good, you know, a good example how people don't want other people to experience feelings. I think about sometimes parents, uh, you know, want to protect their kids in some ways, and so they don't want them to have certain experiences, so they don't uh, feel certain things. That's like sometimes a good example is how we want to control people's experience. And I think about that at this point as like ripping people off of what's theirs to experience and learning how to navigate that regardless of age. So, for simplicity's sake, we've distilled all emotions into five core emotions just for simplicity's sake. And those are anger, fear, joy, sadness, and creative or sexual energy. Mm-hmm. And how we've interpreted that is such that, you know, where do you like, where do you experience? How do you know when you're having an emotion, Michael? How, me.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a sensation in in the body.
1: Yeah. Something happens in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And then we turn that into, we label it with some kind of emotion, something it's energy in the body. So we actually experience emotions in our bodies. But most of the time, what's happening is people have developed with intelligence strategies to not feel those emotions in the body go up into our head and try to figure it out so that we can stop the emotion. (laughs) And so emotional intelligence is about first, like you mentioned earlier, becoming emotionally literate, you know, first, how do I know what emotion is here so I can get the intelligence from it? And so uh, again, from Gay and Katie Hendricks, we've gotten these maps of generalizations of where different emotions might light up in the body. Mm -hmm. Um, and again, this is generalizations. This isn't everything for everybody, Mm -hmm. but in general, the anger zone tends to be around the shoulders, the back and the jaw in general, Mm -hmm. um, in general, joy, uh, can be, And uh, a sensation people experience an upward sensation around their spine or their core in general. Sadness, oftentimes the sad zones are uh, behind the face and the throat, upper chest. Uh, Fear, often around the diaphragm or stomach areas. And then sexual creative energy can be in the um, genitalia Uh, but I think a lot of people also report that uh, can be global uh, through skin, through their bodies, sort of a global sensation. Mm
2: -hmm. So
1: those are the um, like geographic locations of the generalities of where emotions can live in the body.
0: And to just, oh, so go ahead.
1: Yeah, I was just gonna say, and so then what people can do is if they're trying to make that connection between activity in the body and emotions, they could say, ah, something's going on. Okay, where is it? Where do you feel that something going on? I feel it in my stomach. Oh, check and see if there's any fear. And, you know, a good example for that is, and personally in my, my uh, this is a good example. I, I tell people like I never experienced fear until I was 33 years old. My go-to is anger. I wake up in the morning, I look out the window and piss myself off. Uh, just by the weather, it's like anger is my go-to. I thought I was always anger, but then I started this practice and realizing I had a lot of activity in my stomach and realized, wow, I think there's fear here way more often than I ever realized. And it's been expanding for me and reflective for me to recognize that distinction and use the mapping to help me get there.
0: Hmm. What, what led to that? If not realization, what, what led to you? Uh, I'm guessing there was a lot of mental overriding, which you've alluded to that you didn't feel fear until you were 33. Was that something that you tagged as an inappropriate emotion to feel? Was that something that was not welcome in your household? Was it something that you didn't feel was welcome in the world? Like What, what do you think contributed most to that?
1: Yeah. That's a good question. You know, we, it's like, I didn't wake up in the morning and say, today's another day, not to feel fear. You know, it wasn't (laughs) like a conscious decision. I think my personality style, I play with the Enneagram a lot. Mm -hmm. And so I lead with type eight, my personality style has a bias towards anger. And in my childhood environment, anger was very common and easy to access. That wasn't a problem in my family structure. And then, you know, it started to become, you know, being the angry person, you know, it motivated me a lot in terms of all the politicking I did and justice I did, it was great and it was also exhausting. Mm -hmm. And that part of the development was to look for, and we all have these, we'll all have sort of a mask, an emotional favorite, a favorite emotion that we'll go to because it's most familiar to us, it's easy for us to access and it will often mask what is really going on. So, for me and my style, anger was a mask for fear. Mm. And for a lot of people, some people might use sadness to mask anger.
2: Uh-huh.
1: And so, that's just another avenue to start looking at for the intelligence of okay, where's the sensation in the body? My head thinks I'm angry, but my body's all activated in my tummy. Uh-huh you and um, showing up with some curiosity without being right. Well, I know I'm angry, except my tummy's all flared up, Deb. So go take a look.
0: (laughs) Uh And just to tie this all in together from what we've already spoken about, and before we move towards the, the back end here, how would, what would that look like on a normal day for you where you're, you're certainly more aware of what's, what's happening now in your body and you can locate the different emotions. So what's, what's one typical way that maybe you said, like, you might look out the window and see that it's weather that you don't like and get angry. So like, if you could walk us through like a minute or two of how that might show up, whether it's at work in relationship, whatever it is, like, when you get angry, what is that? What's the, the process if, if you're catching it and being conscious? What, what happens there?
1: So it's anger or, you know, if I notice that I'm just activated, if I get triggered. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, that's the, that's the beauty of the first question, which is where am I? Right. Is we don't know where we are until we know. And this practice I find is what is helpful to shorten the gap between unconscious reactivity and conscious reactivity. So, we get reactive because that's just what human beings do with a thought, with reading the newspaper, with a conversation. And we don't know we're reactive until we do. So, an important part of the practice is baking in this regular self question Deb, where am I? Michael, where am I? So that it becomes part of the background conversation is an ongoing self check, an ongoing line check. Where am I in this moment? Mm-hmm. So I'm doing that all day long. Where am I? However long it takes, whether it's seconds or sometimes days, less so days for me before I catch that I was reactive. But in the moment I catch I'm reactive, often it is sensational for me. It's body. I'm a very body-based person. So I might feel heat in my face. Um, I might get uh, my vision might narrow. I literally have kind of a narrowing and my focus kind of gets acute. Mm. So there's like a way I move through the world where I'm sort of open and I'm, there's a globalness Mm -hmm. about me in the room and with you. And then if I get triggered, I notice my my focus sort of narrows and gets more acute. So those are some of my cues where I get, whoops, line check, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. line check. And at this point, I just naturally go right to the second question when I catch it that I've gotten reactive, you know, whether it's five miles below the line or three inches below the line, I just go, Oh, I got, you got scared. I sort of do the assumptive close is whenever I'm reactive, I know it's because I just got scared. And because that's the definition of being below the line is in a state of threat, fear-based So I just know I just got scared. I believed a thought and scared myself. Mm -hmm. So I just go, oh, Deb, you just got scared. That's okay. And at this point, that's often enough to shift Mm -hmm. right there. I just get scared. I welcome the fear. I give my, I mean, and this is happening within seconds inside myself. I just welcome the fear. I offer myself open-hearted acceptance and then I get willing to shift.
0: Yeah. It's, it's really hard to overstate the efficacy of self-acceptance and self-awareness and, and self-compassion, which is, I think, another form of self-acceptance. It just, wow, like what a profound shift that you can make when you accept yourself for, for being exactly where you are. And I know that in my experience, that can be, it can be challenging at times, but it's, it's really the, the practice is one of the things I enjoy most about the book is that it just invites us into the practice. It doesn't really overcomplicate things. It's just about doing it, build, building these muscles. And, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite aspects of it. I wanted to ask you if, if there's something that like a component of the book or a component of your work that you wish that people got more of, or that gets glossed over a little bit too much or mm. some, something of that nature.
1: Yeah it really is about this acceptance piece and it's acceptance of whatever is. So when you, you know, when we're talking about acceptance, sometimes literally it's acceptance of accepting that I'm defensive and righteous. It's not bypassing or skipping over that to get to the part of self that is enlightened or is sitting on the cushion and some guru idealized version of ourselves but it's really about, oh yeah, I was totally positioned right there. I was thinking I was right as rain and you were wrong as yesterday. That's what I was doing over here. That's what, like, it's not, it's, it's about accepting what's here, not the content of it necessarily, but the, the expression of humanity, it's not the end of it. And I think, I don't, I I don't think we gloss over it. Clearly I'm putting a lot of attention on it, but it's, it's the part about not skipping over who and how you're showing up in the moment to get to some better version of you because that's not being present. Being present is, yeah, I'm angry and defensive right now. F you, that's what's here. Yeah. I'm scared. And in analysis paralysis right now, that's it oh, that's what I'm doing, I'm in analysis paralysis. That there's something about really welcoming the normal, the normalcy of being reactive. We do that, we do that as human beings. And when we make space for our reactivity, it becomes funny. (laughs) I become ridiculous to myself, I can't take myself and my issue as seriously when I just go like, yeah, That's right. I'm the one that's the agent for conflict right now because I'm defensive. I don't know what you're doing, but I know I'm defensive. Oh, oh, I'm defensive. (laughs) And I bring my attention back to me. And all that really comes from this granular notion, like getting granular with what's here now, not when I'm better, not when I've learned, or not when I've convinced someone else of something, but really coming back to accepting the human that's here right now with an open heart. Yeah, I do that sometimes. Mm. That's not glossed over, but in my experience, it takes people like two to 10 years to yeah. get <laughs> that being reactive isn't a problem or wrong. And in fact, in the reactivity is the solve.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, your, your experience seems to be on point because I was first introduced to this work two years ago when when Jim was on Tim Ferriss' podcast. That was the first time I heard it, and I've listened to that podcast several times, and I bought the book right away. And the first thing I did, Deb, when I read that book was I made it a goal to be, let's be above the line as much as possible, right? Like, that's the game. The game is to always be open, to always be curious, to always be present and available. And it, it's only been recently, I, I wouldn't say figured it out in two years but I'm at that two-year mark Mm. and uh, I finally really have I have that deeper knowing that it's not a game to get above the line it's to be aware of where Mm. am I now period Mm. stop and as a natural byproduct of being there now and feeling our emotions to completion and all that stuff we we do become more present and and more available but that's not We don't do these moves only to get there. It's just to presence our experience of whatever is happening. So theres I I know that we're running up on time here. There's one thing that you brought in that I experience to be in your zone of genius. And I would love to hear you just really quickly explain what is a zone of genius. and, And the thing that I experience in your zone of genius is bringing play into what otherwise might be very serious subject matter for a lot of people.
1: Mm, Thanks. Yeah. So the zone of genius is that's really when, when shit starts getting fun with this work, frankly, Mm -hmm. it's this idea that when we're in, you know, a lot of people call it the flow state or the zone. It's that it's like when you're doing that thing, that time and space disappears and you could do that thing and you forget to eat and the body doesn't need to have a bio break. And it's just this experience of, you know, at the end of that experience, you're so well used. Like you've given everything that's yours to give and left nothing on the table and could do it again. And it isn't necessarily something that is gonna be monetized. It's not like, it doesn't have to be a career. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I think one of my zones of genius is dance. And I'm not a professional dancer by any measure. It's just that when I'm dancing, it's that experience where my personality gets suspended and life moves through me in some very potent and uh, important ways, but I'm not a professional dancer. Uh So it's good to compare it with, uh, there are these four zones and there's a zone of incompetence, competence, excellence, and genius. So I could briefly describe that for a second. Like a zone of incompetence for me would be like if I tried to change the head gasket on my car, like (laughs) I don't know how to do that. I would hurt myself and I would be miserable and I would make people around me miserable because I'm not doing what's mine to do. Mm -hmm. And so then I'm not gonna, I'm gonna like, I would just be miserable. When I was a cardiac nurse, uh, that was a zone of competence for me. And I also had to work hard. I'm a people person and a cardiac nurse needs to put a lot of attention on lab values, quantitative tests. I had to work hard at that. And yet I was competent. So it was effortful. I was a hospice nurse for a long time. That was more a zone of excellence where I got a lot of recognition. I was very good at it. I was a resource on the team. You know, that's often where people feel like they have this golden handcuffs Uh
2: experience
1: of you're good at it, you get a lot of recognition for it, and yet you still have this something inside of you isn't getting out. It's not being expressed. And then, you know, I think zone of genius for me is, is sharing this work and being in presence with people and seeing what comes, what wants to happen. And there's no daydreaming, you know, at the end of the day, it's like, I'm well used. I put my head on the pillow, grateful, and I can't wait to do it again tomorrow. And so we find that when people are not living in their zone of genius, somewhere around 70% of their time, 60%, 70% of their time, they're going to have more drama. They're going to have more conflict because they've got all this inner resource that isn't being expressed and so then we get you know the mind and we get shitty with ourselves and each other and create more conflict and drama
0: yeah well deb i'm I'm gonna link to all the different stuff and resources that we've mentioned so far in the conversation in my show notes is there anywhere else that you would point the listeners to to connect with you
1: no, I think all the resources you'll provide will, will be great. On our website, we're open source; We have a lot of resources for people there. Short videos, books, all kinds of resources that are open source for the community to take advantage of.
0: Mm-hmm. And if you have time, I, I like to always end my interview with uh, this one last question. The podcast is called Mike's Search for Meaning. And I would love to know, Deb, what does it mean to you in your words, to live a meaningful life?
1: Yeah. I know you sent me the question ahead of time, but I'm, uh, I'm an in the moment person. Who I was when I read that question is different from who I am now. Mm-hmm. So I'm just gonna pause for a second. In this moment, there is something for me that is inherent around meaningfulness means like I'm in integrity. Uh, I'm I'm experiencing this experience. The experience inside is. What's inside is being expressed.
2: Mm.
1: That there's no hiding. There's no shape shifting. There's no pretending. That there's alignment and congruence, with, what's happening on the inside and how I show up with you in this conversation, Mm. and then how I show up in the next moment. So it's, it's that kind of congruence feels meaningful in this moment.
0: Yeah. Well, Deb, I, I would have loved to keep going with you, but I'm, I'm glad that we got the 50 minutes that we did together. And uh, I'm, I'm such a big fan of your work. And it was, I was in a workshop, obviously, that you know that you led and uh, I, I got so much out of it, and I will continue to look back on the book and the workshop for probably many years to come. And it was it was such a pleasure to have you on. So uh, thank you so much. I'm I'm really grateful for the opportunity.
1: Well, it's so my pleasure, Michael. I'm really excited about what you're up to and how you are a space for um, meaningfulness
0: mm-hmm.
1: for you and others. So. Keep at it. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you. And to all the listeners, I hope you have a good rest of your day or evening and take good care. Peace. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well and keep living with purpose. Peace mm